The captain sipped a glass of tea as he stood before the wheel. Like all his previous maiden voyages, the journey had gone well. All the passengers were comfortable, the crew members were seeing to their duties, and the ship was set to arrive at its destination on time. There were many social classes aboard the vessel, filled with individuals from every walk of life. Some were wealthy and simply returning to their homeland. Others were poor and looking to build a new life in a prosperous new country. The captain pondered these things as he gazed out the window. The sea was as black as the night, and the air was cold enough to see one's breath. As peaceful as the darkness was, it was hiding a horrible danger. Concealed in the shroud of night was the object that would not only end the mighty ship's maiden voyage, but would send it into the immortal pages of history. There was peace, and the world had an even tenor to its way. It seems to me that the disaster about to occur was the event that not only made the world rub its eyes and awake, but woke it with a start, keeping it moving at a rapidly accelerating pace ever since, with less and less peace, satisfaction, and happiness. To my mind, the world of today awoke April 15, 1912. Jack Thayer, Titanic Survivor. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. This season will take a detailed look at the lives of five men who exemplify some of the crucial virtues of life. And from these examples, you'll be inspired to cultivate a life of virtue of your own. Welcome to Episode 5, The Chivalry of the Man Aboard the RMS Titanic. Hosted by Scott Einig, with special guest Jim Myers, Education Executive for the Titanic Museum in Branson, Missouri. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, It is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is chivalry. Though the term is used often to describe the codes of behavior of the Knights of the Middle Ages, the essence of its meaning remains entirely relevant in modern times. Chivalry is a virtue that encompasses a series of virtues one displays for the benefit of others, such as courtesy, love, honor, and loyalty. Above all else, it is defined by selfless actions. Though men and women can both display chivalry, it is a virtue often associated with men. Even in this cynical age, chivalry continues to say, this is how men should live. One of the most memorable examples of this great virtue was displayed on the night of April 14, 1912. This was the night that the RMS Titanic struck an iceberg sunk in less than three hours, 
and killed over 1,500 people. The sinking of the Royal Mail Ship Titanic is widely regarded as one of the 20th century's most significant events. It was not simply an event that changed ocean travel forever, but changed mankind's view of the world. Before Titanic, the world was moving at a rapid pace. It seemed that every day, some new invention or improved technology was making life easier. Wealthy citizens delighted in flaunting their wealth, and were almost worshipped by the less fortunate. With so much prosperity and confidence, mankind seemed to think himself unstoppable. People were living longer. Happiness and optimism were in the air. No problem was too great for man to solve. It was a time that author Mark Twain referred to as the Gilded Age. With man's confidence in his seeming invincibility came an absolute trust in technology, especially in regards to travel and transportation. The transatlantic uh, travel was uh, uh, such a big thing because there was no air travel at that time. So if you were going to go from country to another country across the ocean, you had to go by ship. And so there was a huge amount of transatlantic travel with uh, wealthy people that are traveling uh, for holiday. Uh, you have the business class that is traveling for business. And then, of course, you have the uh, large uh, immigration population that is moving to the United States uh, at that time, uh, which was very big business for the shipping companies. The White Star Line had been one of the most profitable and powerful shipping companies in the world for decades. When the 20th century began, the Cunard Line had grown to become White Star's chief competitor. Cunard's ships were renowned for their speed. The RMS Lusitania was briefly the fastest and largest passenger ship in the world until Cunard built RMS Mauritania, which held the speed record for 20 years. Though White Star was behind Cunard in speed, they were determined to outdo them in size, comfort, and luxury. J. Bruce Ismay, the White Star's president, had inherited the line from his father, who had previously built it into the corporate giant it now was. Though sometimes difficult to work with and be around, Ismay was a very skilled businessman and was always looking for ways to make the White Star line better. The owner of White Star was legendary American banker J.P. Morgan, who also had grand ambitions to outdo the competition. Lord Pierre, the chairman of the shipbuilding company Harland & Wolf, was equally enthusiastic about Ismay and Morgan's plans for the future. With Morgan's financial backing, Pierre and Ismay got to work. The ships they soon commissioned were advertised and built to be the most luxurious ships the world had ever known. White Star and Cunard were now engaged in a fierce race, a race to be the first, the biggest, and the greatest. Three ships soon emerged from this heated competition. The RMS Olympic, the HMHS Britannic, and the RMS Titanic. Titanic was born alongside her sister ship Olympic in Belfast, Northern Ireland, in the shipyard of Harland and Wolfe. Shipping had become the very life of Belfast. Most of the town worked within the industry, and the construction of a ship had a special significance felt by the citizens. In the early 1900s, ships were built by hand, and Titanic was no exception. Titanic gave the townsfolk who built her a feeling of personal pride and a sense of shared accomplishment. 
The mighty vessel they were to build was designed by Harlan and Wolfe's managing director, Thomas Andrews. Andrews was hardworking, enthusiastic, kind, and well-loved within the company. His own uncle was the, uh, the owner of Harlan and Wolfe, and he could probably have stepped right in and uh, worked himself to a management position very quickly, but he started young, and he believed that he wanted to learn every aspect of building ships. And so we started out uh, in the in the joiners department and then moved into the cabinet making department. Uh, from there, he moved on into every department that had anything to do with building a ship and eventually worked himself into the drafting office and had into the design and then became the head designer of the ships there at Harlan and Wool. And they said that when he would go through the shipyard, because the way he had worked his way to the top, that men would simply stop and doff their hats to him to show him respect. You know, he was uh, one of those people that believed in, in hard work and uh, he would go and try to make improvements. He was always constantly trying to improve. They said he was always working very late at night trying to come up with new ideas. His own wife said that Thomas Andrews was without a doubt the most humble man she ever met. You know, he didn't see uh, himself as above other people. Um, you know, he knew he was uh, responsible for a great deal, and he uh, took advice from a lot of different quarters, and that, that's, that's pretty, pretty impressive for a man in his position. Everything about Titanic was on a magnified scale. Her overall cost was around $7 million in 1912 or the modern equivalent of $500 million. 3,000 men labored for almost three years during construction. She towered over all surrounding buildings in Belfast at the time. The ship was so large that Harlan and Wolfe had to rebuild their slipways to accommodate its construction. The rudder alone was over 70 feet tall and weighed 100 tons and the 15 and a half ton anchor required a team of 20 draft horses to pull it to the yard. The three propellers each measured 23 feet across with the middle propeller weighing 22 tons. The hull was held together by three million steel and iron rivets. Each of the four massive funnels towered 80 feet above the deck. The engines were three stories tall. One and a half tons of coal were shoveled by hand into her boilers for every mile she moved. She needed 650 tons of coal to fire her 150 furnaces and could hold over 6,000 tons of coal in all. Measuring 882 feet long, 172 feet high, and weighing over 60,000 tons, Titanic was the largest moving object ever made by the hand of man. You could actually walk miles along the decks and passages, covering different ground all the time. I was thoroughly familiar with pretty well every type of ship afloat, but it took me 14 days before I could with confidence find my way from one part of the ship to the other. Charles Lightoller, second officer. She was also without question the safest ship of her age. She had been built with numerous watertight compartments that were meant to keep the ship afloat in almost any scenario. Though Thomas Andrews and a couple others had suggested more lifeboats, Ismay and the White Star Line overruled him. 
Maritime law of the time stated that the more watertight compartments a ship had, the less lifeboats it needed. This was especially true of Titanic. It seemed that in everybody's mind, there was nothing in the universe that could truly threaten her dominance over the transatlantic passenger trade. Shipbuilder Magazine was so impressed with the giant vessel that they called her practically unsinkable. Titanic would have 892 crew members in total, all of them working on every deck and in every class. Arguably, the most crucial crew members of all were those in the engine rooms and boilers, known as the Black Gang. Their existence was kept secret from the passengers, and they had their own custom passageways to get around the ship. Many in the Black Gang were only planning to be there for the crossing of the Atlantic before leaving the ship to look for work elsewhere in America. But the short time aboard was still exhausting. It was a very difficult uh, job. It was dirty, it's hot, it's going to be over 100 degrees all the time. It was loud, uh, they were not paid well at all. And then of course the absolute worst job on board the, the ships, and even the Titanic, would have been down where they're going to be shoveling the coal. They were going to shovel between 610 and 640 tons of coal a day. That is just amazing. Uh, those men were paid little or nothing. Um, they constantly, they worked like in four hour shifts. You work four hours, you're off four hours, and then right back on. Uh, you can lean on your shovel for a little while, but then it's going to be right back to work. And you're standing right in front of those furnaces and uh, uh, throwing that coal in there. You're going to sleep down in that area. You're going to eat down in that area. Uh, and you're not allowed to go anywhere else. Uh, you're basically confined down there. Aside from her massive scale, the ship was designed to separate first, second, and third class passengers. First class accommodations were everything the White Star Line promised it would be. The passengers would enjoy a squash court, gymnasium, Turkish bath, heated swimming pool, and a first-rate dining saloon with luxurious meals, cafes, and smoking lounges. There was also a highly advanced Marconi radio that allowed the crew to communicate with first class and for first-class passengers to send messages to the shore. This system could also communicate with ships 400 miles away in case of emergencies. The most luxurious suite cost around $2,500, or the modern equivalent of over $65,000. This was the worth of a crew member's salary for several years. While second and third class were not nearly as lavish, the accommodations were still comfortable and practical. Second class had a good dining menu, a library, and comfortable beds. One of the most notable second-class passengers was bandleader and violinist Wallace Hartley. He had previously served on the canard ship Mauritania and had a fiancé waiting for him back in England. Third class was also clean and comfortable, and had a menu that the truly destitute would never have imagined eating. The average cost of a third-class cabin was around $36 in 1912. Nearly 40 countries were represented on board, ranging from Germany, the Middle East, Argentina, Britain, and America. U.S. law required third class to be separate in order to regulate the spread of any diseases carried by immigrants. I can't imagine what an immigrant went through at that time uh, when you have to basically sell absolutely everything you own uh, and you've saved, been saving 
uh, just to get yourself to another country. Uh, but also you, you have to stop and remember that so many of these people, uh, they either spoke very little or no English at all. And they had to depend on possibly someone in their group that spoke a little English to help them be able to travel at all. So many countries, as we know, uh, you know, they were very hard on their on their populations. And so this was basically like an escape. And so, you know, you have people that are fleeing countries because, of, you know, for their lives. You have people that are also going to seek a better life, um, you know, more opportunities that they've heard about. And so you have people here that they don't read the signs on the ship. They don't understand instructions that are being given to them, you know, but they're, they're depending on that somebody's going to get them there. Many passengers were coming aboard Titanic from Ireland to seek a new beginning in America. Ireland was a very poor country in the early 1900s and immigration was often the only way to a better life. Irish families of the day were often quite large, and it could take as much as three years worth of savings to buy a ticket to a ship. Sometimes they had to take everything with them. One passenger hauled 27 suitcases on board. Often, an immigrant would come back from America to escort, or in some cases pay for, the rest of their families back with them. One such group all left together from the tiny parish of Adderghoul in County Mayo. There were 14 in all. Some of them were related, and others were meeting their immigrant relatives in America. The departure was bittersweet and emotional. Once an immigrant left Ireland, they almost never returned. Yet the group was very excited and filled with anticipation at the prospect of their new lives in the land of opportunity across the Atlantic. History would later call this group the Adderghoul 14. The Adderghoul 14 were 14 people that were from the same small parish there in Ireland. It's in uh, Northwest Ireland. And those 14 people were traveling together. And so, you, you know, that's kind of a, a special story. All of these people that are leaving this small village going uh, to the United States. And they're, you know, one of the great stories about one of the Adderghoul 14 is that they had gone out and they had purchased new clothing to wear. They were leaving with what they considered to be their best clothes so that they could make a great impression from the very beginning. And you know they had spent just about everything they had just to go in the first place. Now, once they got on the Titanic, you know, they sat down in third class. Um, people had brought musical instruments and, uh, you know, they're just having a marvelous time because they, they're headed to something better. That's kind of touching, really, you know, when you stop and think about it. Titanic was launched into the River Logan on May 31, 1911. She slid into the water on skids greased with 20 tons of tallow. Though she was finally afloat, there was still a year's worth of work to be done. While the exteriors were mostly complete, the interiors needed to be built and the funnels needed to be added. She was finally ready for sea trials by April 1, 1912, and promptly received certification from the British Board of Trade. Ismay and Andrews boarded the ship, while J.P. Morgan himself had to cancel at the last minute, despite having a lavish suite reserved. Even chocolate tycoon Milton Hershey had to cancel his trip due to business. While many passengers had to cancel their trips, 
or had only planned to be on the ship during its first few stops before the voyage. There were many people who tried to persuade their friends and loved ones from traveling on the Titanic. Many were concerned about being on such a large ship that had never made a voyage, while others claimed to have received premonitions about an impending doom. One of the musicians' father, he, he uh, considered himself a psychic, and he told his son, uh, you know, I don't want you to go on this ship. And, you know, didn't, you know his son didn't take it seriously. And, and, uh, and then you also, you know, you hear uh, uh, like John Harper, uh, the minister, a friend of his said, you know, I've, I've got a bad feeling about this. If you'll go later on the Lusitania, I'll pay for your ticket. And John Harper declined. You know, so these people that uh, had these almost premonitions about the Titanic, uh, there's just a lot of those. Uh, of course, you know, we know that some of them may have uh, been, you know, kind of conveniently made afterwards, but there were, there were a lot of people that had uh, strange feelings about it. Captain Edward John Smith was to be Titanic's maiden captain. Smith was the most experienced and highest paid captain at the time, and had been the captain of all the White Star Line's maiden voyages for the past eight years. He was particularly beloved by the wealthy class, even earning the nickname, the Millionaire's Captain. Very often, wealthy passengers changed their itineraries so that they could sail on a ship commanded by Smith. When asked about his career a few years earlier, he claimed that his 40 years at sea had been uneventful. I have never been in any accident of any sort worth speaking about. You see, I am not very good material for a story. Titanic was to be his last crossing before a happy retirement. The ship first stopped in Southampton to pick up its first load of passengers. A small group of boiler room workers who had been drinking in a pub did not notice Titanic's departure and failed to get back on board. It was also here that a deckhand told one of the passengers that God himself could not sink this ship. A number of distinguished guests boarded in Southampton, including investor, colonel, and amateur historian Archibald Gracie IV and Mr. and Mrs. Isidore Strauss. The Strausses were the co-owners of Macy's Hardware Store and were good friends with Gracie. They and the other passengers spent the first few days of the voyage mingling with guests, telling stories, and using the various first-class facilities. One passenger claimed the Turkish bath was extremely unpleasant, but that the jump into the pool afterwards was wonderful. Titanic's next stop was the town of Cherbourg, France. John Jacob Astor IV and his 18-year-old second wife Madeline boarded the ship here after traveling abroad for some time. Astor was the Titanic's wealthiest passenger, having been born into a prosperous family. Other various wealthy passengers boarded here, including the ship's only known Mexican and Haitian passengers, Manuel Ramirez and Joseph LaRoche. Ramirez had befallen some unfortunate political and financial situations and was returning to Mexico to see his wife. LaRoche was planning to return to Haiti with his daughters and pregnant wife, Juliette. He had some difficulty finding good work in his wife's native France and planned to find better financial opportunities back home, where he had numerous political and familial connections. Titanic made her final stop in Queenstown, Ireland. This was the town where the Adder Ghoul 14 arrived and boarded the giant ship. 
Though they were among the poorest and lowest class, the accommodations on Titanic were more luxurious than anything they had ever seen. It was the first time they each had a bed to themselves, the first time they had seen electric lighting and indoor plumbing, and the first variety in their menu in years. With her supply of stores and 2,200 passengers complete, the ship set sail on the open waters of the Atlantic. She would not be seen or photographed again for 73 years. Many people have said it was a marvelous voyage. They enjoyed themselves very much. Now, of course, you know, it's nothing like a cruise uh, ship that people go on today, you know, where they have tons of activities for you. Uh, it was just simply socializing, uh, playing cards, uh, re reading a book in the library. Uh, you might sit out on your deck chair and uh, look at the ocean if the, if the weather was warm enough. Uh, you would stroll the deck. Uh, the deck was basically a quarter of a mile of deck that you could stroll around. Even the officers, you know, commented that uh, there was very little problems. The ship was performing uh, wonderfully. Uh, Thomas Andrews was very pleased with uh, how the ship was performing. It was a very, very good voyage up until that point. The first few days of the voyage were normal and uneventful. Though the first class luxuries were exclusively for first class and often cost extra to use, there were still many ways to stay entertained. Second-class passenger Ruth Becker, who would go on to be one of the final living survivors, recalled looking into one of the dining halls and thinking it was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. Famed survivor Eva Hart remembered her father spoiling her while her mother slept during the day, making friends with other children, and having a good time. Though many areas of the ship were off-limits, this did not sway some of the children from wandering around. Young Frankie Goldsmith, then only nine years old, spent time exploring the inner workings of the ship with other third-class boys. Often, they were discovered and thrown out, but one day, they made their way undetected to the boiler rooms and had a memorable encounter. He said one of his clearest memories was they found a spot where they could look down through a hole uh, and they could see the men shoveling coal. And he said a lot of them were singing like a chant or uh, repeating something to kind of stay in rhythm. And he said one of them looked up just right at him. He said it was almost like he knew he was there. And he looked up at him. He said he was all covered in coal dust, but he smiled at me. And he said the smile was even brighter because of all the coal dust on his face. He said he smiled at me and he waved and he went right back to shoveling. And he said it's one of his clearest memories of the Titanic. Despite Titanic's inability to compete with the speed of her contemporaries, there was supposedly talk of trying to push the ship to go faster. Ismay, always the enthusiastic opportunist, was reported to have said that they should speed up the ship so as to arrive even earlier than her scheduled arrival, thereby generating more publicity. During this time, the ship received numerous warnings from other ships about ice in the area. However, since the wire operators were employed by Marconi and not the White Star Line, the messages from first class took precedence and the ice warnings were only sporadically relayed. It was believed that with all the ship's features, numerous lookouts on deck, smooth ocean conditions, and a highly advanced radio system, 
would give the crew plenty of time to sail around any ice. Captain Smith had once said that he could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Each night the sun sank right in our eyes along the sea, making an undulating, glittering pathway, a golden track charted on the surface of the ocean which our ship followed unswervingly until the sun dipped below the edge of the horizon and the pathway ran ahead of us faster than we could steam and slipped over the edge of the skyline. As if the sun had been a golden ball and had wound up its thread of gold too quickly for us to follow. Lawrence Beasley, Titanic Survivor. 11.40 p.m., April 14, 1912. The sun set on Titanic for the last time, and night fell. It was a clear, moonless night. Aside from the 10,000 electric lights on board, Titanic was sailing in a seemingly eternal blackness. Within the blackness dwelt a monster that would have made Titanic appear small by comparison. It was a 10,000-year-old iceberg four times the size of the largest ship ever built. It had been carried by the Labrador Current farther down the Atlantic than it was thought possible for icebergs to travel. It now lay directly in the great ship's path. It was somewhere that it wasn't supposed to be. It takes anywhere between 18 and 24 months to drift that far south. I mean, so that iceberg may have broken off in 1910. But that iceberg was about 60 miles farther south than they had ever seen ice before in recorded history. And so you have no moon, calm ocean, an unusual berg, and in a place where it's not supposed to be. And Frederick Fleet, uh, the lookout who did spot it, he sees stars, no stars, stars. It was just this black shadow shape. And he knows there's something there blocking out the stars on the horizon. Can't imagine how terrified he was. Upon seeing the ominous berg, Fleet rang the bell and called out, Iceberg, right ahead! The ship's first officer, William Murdoch, promptly gave the order to, Hard a starboard! Titanic slowed down and the rudder moved so that she would hopefully swerve to the left and miss the iceberg. But slowing the ship made the rudder less effective, and, just 37 seconds after seeing the iceberg, Titanic dragged alongside it. Despite the collision, most of the people aboard didn't feel it at all. Rumors began to race around the decks. Some said Titanic had thrown a propeller blade, while others said they had passed but not hit an iceberg. To some people, Whatever had occurred was just a fun joke. After all, there was no way anything serious was happening on an unsinkable ship. But below in third class, boiler rooms and watertight compartments, the evidence of damage was purely visible. Water was pouring in with the force of a fire hose across five of the watertight compartments. Titanic had been designed to flow in a scenario where three or four compartments were flooded. Five being ruptured all at once was unthinkable. Yet it had happened. Water was now pouring in at 400 tons per minute. Third class soon became pure chaos as they tried to make their way to the upper decks. Though the pumps and the black gang were working frantically, 
the invasion of the great ship was unstoppable. I think they knew pretty quickly that this ship was in serious trouble. Those men knew there was a lot of problems right away. Um, there was a massive amount of water coming in. I mean, it didn't take very long for the ship's carpenter and Thomas Andrews to survey the damage and come back and say that the ship would founder. Ismay had heard the noise and gone to the captain and Andrews to find out what had happened. Andrews had assessed the damage and made his report. The watertight compartment's bulkheads only rose 10 feet above the waterline and did not have watertight tops. The bow had begun sinking to such an extent that the water would spill over into the next compartment like an ice tray filling with water. Andrews predicted that once Boiler Room 5 was breached, the ship would sink. Titanic was more than large enough to hold the 48 lifeboats needed to save all 2,200 passengers on board. Incredibly, she had only 20. In that moment, the three men knew with the coldest certainty imaginable that not only was the great ship doomed, but that half the people aboard would die. The officers were commanded to order passengers onto the decks for a safety drill. Despite the ship's numerous technological advancements, there were no alarms or emergency signals to alert people. The only way to communicate was for the crew to go to each of the 840 cabins individually. Despite the seriousness of the situation, most people assumed the drill would end soon and they could go back to bed. They actually were very difficult to get to understand uh, what the situation was, but you know, actually some of that may be uh, the fault of the officers. Uh, they, they were not that excitable. And so they, and plus they knew there was not enough lifeboats for everyone. And so they were trying to keep the panic down. You know, these gentlemen are trying to load lifeboats, but also they're not showing that it's uh, that dire of a situation. But you have first class passengers, many of them extremely wealthy people who are not used to having someone command them to do anything. And so many of them, they didn't like the, the sound of the steam being released off of the funnels. They didn't like the cold air and they simply kept going back inside to the lounge. And so when the officers, you know, primarily a uh, light holder was in charge of the lifeboats uh, on one side, Murdoch was in charge of the lifeboats on the other. And so when they were asked, why aren't you filling these boats and why aren't you getting people in? They were like, we can't keep them out here. They're, they're refusing to get in. And then of course, as the ship started listing, then people were like, you know, wait a minute, <laughs> I think we're in trouble here. And by that time, there were a lot of empty seats that could have been taken. The officers had a very difficult time persuading people to get into the lifeboats. If one were to look over the edge of the ship, below them was an 80-foot drop into the blackness of the Atlantic, and many preferred staying aboard the sinking ship. The first few boats were barely half full, with one boat containing only 12 people. The officers and crew were unaware that the lifeboats were capable of holding 70 full-grown men. When you look at the Titanic's crew, uh, you're looking at about 88 sailors, uh, deck sailors, you know, uh, and many of them had never had any experience of lowering the lifeboat. Uh, the only lifeboats they may have ever uh, lowered were when they show the Board of Trades uh, that they, you know, are safe enough to do them. And they usually what they do, we would just do one or two lifeboats and then bring them right back up and, and they're finished. So, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of people 
who simply don't know what direction they're they're going in, and uh, it just all mounted one upon the other. You know, they were they were only going to be able to save if if every boat had been filled properly, and uh, you know, one thousand one hundred and seventy eight. That's all that, that the lifeboats would hold, and uh, there were two thousand two hundred and eight that were on board the ship. So. Uh, there were a lot of people that were never, never going to leave that ship. In third class, the Adderghul 14 were amid the chaos of multiple ethnicities panicking, shouting in multiple languages, and frantically trying to get to the upper deck. In the days prior, they had been through most of the third class deck and saw firsthand how confusing it was. It was a maze with doors leading up and over and around the hallways with no fast and easy way to the top. The group knew that they were unlikely to make it by the stairs, as many of them were locked. They made it outside, and, because there were no stairs on the outside decks, they boldly decided to climb. The men gathered the women and carefully pushed them up to the deck above them, with nothing but the North Atlantic to catch them if they fell. They did this until they finally made it to the upper deck where the lifeboats were being launched. At this time, distress rockets had been fired, and the reality of what was happening was finally settling in. Due to the protocol of women and children first, men were left on deck while their wives and children boarded the lifeboats. It was in these moments that the men displayed great chivalry. Isidore Strauss was offered a place in the boat, but refused it. His wife Ida would not leave him, and so she stepped out of the lifeboat and stood beside him. They were last seen standing arm in arm. Many other wives did the same when their husbands refused their places. John Jacob Astor's wife was given a place in the boat. Because the officer did not recognize the famous millionaire, he did not give him a place. Astor did not protest. He stood aside on the deck, resigned to his fate. Manuel Ramirez and Joseph LaRoche had managed to make it to the boat deck. LaRoche told his family he would meet them in New York, while Ramirez gave up his place on the lifeboat for another. Neither men's bodies were ever recovered. You know, three of your, your real well-known religious men on the Titanic, John Harper, Robert Bateman, and Thomas Biles, all three of them had been given, you know, they told they could go on a lifeboat and they turned them down because they decided to stay behind and give comfort to those that were never going to leave the ship. I mean, if anybody had a reason to leave, it was John Harper. He had a six-year-old daughter. Uh, he was the only parent that that child knew because her mother had died in uh, childbirth. And he puts his daughter and his niece into a lifeboat, and then he sends them on their way, and he turns around and starts helping other people load the lifeboats. Thomas Biles, Catholic priest, same thing. He primarily went down and started finding people in third class and bringing them up. And then he's also hearing their confessions. And, uh, you know, John Harper, there are people that said that even in the water, he was telling people, um, you know, that he was uh, basically telling them that if they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be saved. And he's telling people this in the water, you know, while he himself is freezing to death. At this time, Archibald Gracie, who had come to know some of the women on board, began seeking these women out to get them to the lifeboats. When he saw that they were safely seated, 
he ran back inside and found blankets to keep them warm in the 30-degree air. Gracie then offered assistance to the officers in launching the remaining boats, when he himself had been swept into the sea moments later. He recalled a man who swam toward the upturned lifeboat they were clinging to. One gentleman, he said, swam up and said, do you have room for one more? And they all responded, no. And that man's response wasn't chastising them. So whoever this unknown man was, he needs to be known. He answered with, all right, boys, good luck and God bless. That takes somebody pretty special to make that statement in that type of situation. A woman with two young girls had made her way toward the upper deck. She stopped to ask a crewman where the boats were being loaded. After telling her where, she told him she did not have a life jacket. Upon hearing this, the crewman took her to his cabin and gave her his life jacket from his closet, telling her to pray for him if she survived. The crew member has never been identified. Benjamin Guggenheim, one of the wealthiest men on the ship, finds out the ship is sinking, refuses to uh, even go up and attempt to get into a lifeboat. He and his valet go and dress in their evening wear. And people said that he did clearly say, we are prepared to go down as gentlemen. The black gang were trying desperately to keep the ship afloat. One after the other, the watertight compartments defeated their efforts. Though many of them knew full well the ship was doomed, they stayed down in the depths till the bitter end. There's another very special group that Thomas Andrews was actually the head of, uh, the Guarantee Group. Um, you know, they were all from different parts of the shipbuilding process, and they were on board the Titanic to make sure everything went well. And when the uh, ship started going down, those men went down to the electrical systems and down to the pumps to keep them running as long as possible so that the Titanic could continue to send CQD and SOS, and also to make sure that the ship lasted as long as it did. And none of those men survived. You know, not a single one of them. There are varying accounts of the fate of Captain Smith, who went down with the ship. Some say he survived the sinking but perished in the water. Others say he locked himself in the steering room. One report suggests that he was last seen with Thomas Andrews right before the bow slipped into the water. Andrews himself did everything he could to get people into the lifeboats, even reportedly throwing furniture and spare life vests into the water for people to float on. He was supposedly last seen standing alone in first class with his life jacket beside him, in a state of shock and making no attempt to save himself. There's uh, reports that, uh, you know, in the uh, Harlan and Wolf shipyard after the Titanic went down, they were extremely upset, of course, about losing the Titanic, but also uh, many of the workers, uh, grown men, uh, stood and wept. And some of that was because of the loss of Thomas Andrews. You know, many people said he will be a man that's impossible to replace. That, that speaks volumes. Of all the numerous heroic individuals that horrible night, few would be as immortalized as the eight-man band who played music during the sinking. Band leader Wallace Hartley had instructed the men to play ragtime tunes as Titanic slowly slipped beneath the water. Though there remains dispute about which songs were played, many reported that their final song was the hymn that would become forever synonymous with the Titanic after April 15, 1912.
Many brave things were done that night, but none more brave than by those few men playing minute after minute as the ship settled quietly lower and lower in the sea. The music they played served alike as their own immortal requiem and their right to be recorded on the rolls of undying fame. Lawrence Beasley. Titanic finally lost power close to two o'clock in the morning, plunging the calamity into darkness. Many officers were afraid of rowing back for fear of people swamping the lifeboats and dooming everyone else. The lifeboats stood by, powerless to do anything but witness the terror. The stern of the great ship had now risen 45 degrees out of the water. She had not been designed to bear such a load, and, with horrible sounds, she split in two. 30,000 tons of metal plunged into the water. Just then the ship took a slight but definite plunge. Probably a bulkhead went. And the sea came rolling along up in a wave, over the steel-fronted bridge, along the deck below us washing the people back in a dreadful huddled mass. Those that didn't disappear under the water right away instinctively started to clamber up the side of the deck, still out of water, and work their way towards the stern, which was rising steadily out of the water as the bow went down. It was a sight that doesn't bear dwelling on. To stand there, above the wheelhouse, and on our quarters, watching the frantic struggles to climb up the sloping deck, utterly unable to even hold out a helping hand. Charles Lightor, second officer. The stern began to fill with water at a terribly frantic pace. She stood in the water for a few moments, and finally, Titanic sank beneath the waves forever at 2.20 a.m. The largest moving object in human history had sunk in only two hours and 40 minutes. The cries of those in the water rang out in a way that those in the lifeboats would never forget. The water was 28 degrees, a temperature so cold that a human being could only live for 15 to 20 minutes. Charles Lightoller described the water as being like a thousand knives stabbing into you all at once. It was not drowning, but the cold that killed the remaining people. Few that were pulled from the water were survivors, and some of those died upon being pulled in. In all, only 700 out of 2,200 people survived the disaster. Harold Cottam, the wireless operator of the Cunard ship RMS Carpathia, had been getting ready for bed. Before calling in a night, he decided to switch channels just to see what kind of traffic was coming in from other ships. He discovered the SOS calls from Titanic, and, after learning of her horrible situation, quickly alerted the captain, Sir Arthur Rostron. Without hesitation, he turned his ship into a whirlwind of activity. He springs into action, and it's like he trained for it his entire life. I mean, he gets his ship turned around because they're headed to Gibraltar, and they turn around, and they are steaming full speed back into this dangerous ice to come to the rescue. And uh, he's got his crew up. He tells them not to let any of the passengers on the Carpathia know what's going on, keep them in their rooms, 
He's got his galley people. They're making soup. They're making coffee. Uh, they're getting out blankets for the survivors to uh, come on his ship. And not only that, but they're creating baskets and things that they're going to be able to lower down and pick up injured people. I mean, you know, he takes all uh, as many people uh, that's not doing something out on his own decks so that they're watching for ice uh, so that they can swerve around it. I mean, what a tremendous effort on their part. The lifeboats floated and waited. The survivors held on to the hope that once they boarded a rescue ship, they would find their loved ones. Despite Carpathia's best efforts, it was not soon enough to save Titanic. When she arrived, the lifeboats were all that remained of the greatest liner in history. The survivors were brought on board and given aid by Carpathia's crew. Many of them expected, oh, there are going to be more lifeboats. But as the time goes on, they're not showing up, and then they start looking for loved ones on the ship, and some are finding them, but many of them are just simply in a daze uh, because of what they've been through. They've set out in this cold. Some of them have been out there eight and a half hours in the cold. There's no really no room for them, and many of the Carpathia uh, passengers gave up their rooms, but people are sleeping in hallways. People are sleeping in uh, the library, you know, in the dining room. They're wearing exactly all they had when they left the ship. Uh, some of them have been in the water, you know, like Lytoler and the men that were on that, that Harold Bride, that group, you know, they, they were basically frozen. And so they get them new clothes to wear, you know, and get them out of those wet clothes. And uh, it's just a terrible, terrible situation right there on the Carpathia. And they stay around long enough to make sure they've picked everyone up. And then they tell the other ships that have shown up in the area that they're going to head to New York. Carpathia arrived in New York three days later. It was a media frenzy like nothing else seen in New York at the time. Reporters did whatever it took to get a story, and numerous false claims and rumors only further muddied the truth. Some reports even said that Titanic was still afloat and everyone was alive. Though some families and loved ones were reunited, a majority of the survivors were not so fortunate. Many women were left all alone or with children in this strange new country having to suddenly provide for themselves and their families. This led to Titanic being called by some, the Ship of Widows. J. Bruce Ismay, who had survived the sinking, received an equally horrendous fate. He was, uh, you know, became a villain simply because he survived. You know, uh, if he had gone down with the ship, uh, his name would not be what it is today. And he's, ju he's just another victim of uh, the Titanic disaster. I mean, his life was destroyed. I mean, yeah, he had money, you know, and he was well compensated for stepping down and, and he'd already amassed a, a fortune, but he was a miserable man the rest of his life. And uh, he spent a lot of time alone. It had to be somebody extremely close to him for him to socialize at all. Uh, he became very distant from his wife, you know, so he, he was miserable. and. You know, that's sad. It truly is. Back in England, the town of Southampton was plunged into the deepest despair. Most of the ship's crew had come from the town, and many residents knew at least one of the crew members who perished. Belfast was equally grieved. To the men who built the ship with their bare hands for almost three years and took such pride in her beauty, 
it was a loss similar to a family member. The parish of Adderghul, where 14 of her residents departed with such high hopes for a better life, experienced the worst proportional loss of any one area. The town was so traumatized that they didn't speak about it for almost a hundred years. Though these places felt the disaster the hardest, it was ultimately felt by the whole world. It was not just the ship that had been lost. The confidence and innocence of an age seemed to have gone down with her. The 20th century had officially begun. Though many lives were destroyed because of what had happened, there were many who were able to overcome the trauma. The three survivors of the Adderghul 14 went on to have families and meaningful lives. Adderghul would eventually commemorate the lives lost through art, ceremonies, and monuments. Archibald Gracie was one of the first to write a memoir of the sinking, and it remains in print to this day. Sadly, due to the hypothermia causing his diabetes to worsen, he died eight months later. First-class survivor Margaret Brown, who would be forever known as the unsinkable Molly Brown, used her status to honor the dead and to give aid to the survivors. Walter Lord's definitive 1955 book, A Night to Remember, along with the subsequent film adaptation, revived interest in the disaster, an interest that has only grown since. Jack Thayer's claim that he saw the ship split in two would not be truly believed until the wreck was discovered in 1985 by undersea explorer Robert Ballard. Some of the last remaining survivors were cremated and had their ashes spread over the spot of the sinking. Numerous museums and touring exhibitions see millions of visitors every year, giving people a glimpse into a world long gone, yet as familiar as the recent past. The loss of the great ship happened well over a century ago. Numerous wars, cultural shifts, and advances in technology have occurred since the ill-fated voyage. Our modern digital age of information barely resembles the gilded age of Titanic's day. Yet in our rapidly moving, always changing, and forever restless world, the fate of Titanic still haunts the imagination of the world. In spite of the sinking's distinction as one of the worst maritime disasters of all time, Titanic means different things to different people. It is a profound study of class distinction. It represents a perfect storm of human error that has rarely been seen throughout history. It serves as a time capsule of a long forgotten age. For others, it is merely a treasure trove ripe for pillaging. Eventually, the wreck of the most famous ship in history will disappear, doomed to become nothing but a memory. But what the generations of men who came after the tragedy must never forget is the chivalry of men like Archibald Gracie, the Black Gang, Thomas Andrews, Wallace Hartley, and the band, the Guarantee Group, John Harper, and countless others. From the smallest of acts to the mightiest deeds, from the wealthiest to the poorest, the chivalry these men displayed on that fateful night in April 1912 continue to say to us today, this is what men do. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. A special thanks to historian Jim Myers 
Education Director for the Titanic Museum in Branson, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. Join us for the season two finale, Loose and Unscripted, where we discuss the highlights and making of season two.